This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, July 3rd, 2016, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at restorationroadchurch.com. If you have your Bibles, uh, open up to Genesis 17. Thank you for being here. My name is Sam, and most of you know that, and I get to preach a lot, and it's awesome. So we are going straight through books of the Bible, and we are in Genesis right now. We'll be in Genesis for a while. We're in 17. There are 50 chapters. We're getting there almost halfway. By the end of the summer, we'll be halfway. Genesis 17, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to read the whole chapter. It says this, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. And then Abram fell on his face. And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I've made you the father of a multitude of nations. And I'll make you exceedingly fruitful, and I'll make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout the generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any circumcised male, an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people, and he has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you should not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her, and I will bless her, and she'll become nations, kings of peoples shall come from her. And then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, Nope, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him. I'll make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes, and I'll make him into a great nation, but I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. And when he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. And then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house, or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him, Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And that very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all men of his house, those born in the house, and those bought with 
money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. This is God's word. Now, when you commit to preaching verse by verse through books of the Bible, you are going to encounter passages like Genesis 17. And surprise, surprise, we're going to be talking about circumcision today. Now, this is the kind of passage that I think many of us, as we were reading through, if we got to Genesis 17, you would probably naturally dismiss, um, maybe dismiss as unrelated to our, the real important issues in our culture and certainly unhelpful to my faith. How is this going to increase, strengthen, move me in my faith? I think that's a fair question. But because um, the covenant of circumcision was important to Jesus, I believe it should be important to us. And though the covenant of grace has made the physical act of circumcision unnecessary, there is a spiritual circumcision that we continue to enjoy and even practice. In other words, we understand uh, the new by understanding the old. And it's important to, to press into these kinds of passages so that we can understand why we do what we do as a church and as God's people today. Now, the practice of circumcision plays a pretty prominent role in the Bible. If you were just to survey throughout the Old Testament into the New, you'd see it comes up pretty often. Um, just really quickly, in Exodus 4, so this is obviously it's in Genesis, and you get into the next book of the Bible, which is the story of the redemption of God's people from slavery in Egypt. Exodus 4 is probably one of the strangest passages in Scripture. And I preached on it years ago. Feel free to download it and listen. You'll see it's pretty odd. But suffice to say, it's about Moses who, after hearing uh, you know, God speak to him through this burning bush, he goes with his family back to Egypt to declare, you know, let my people go. Thus saith the Lord. On the way, it says the Lord basically tries and desires to kill him, and it's revealed that it's because he basically hasn't circumcised his boys. Strange. Joshua 5, you know, as you go into more of the history of the conquering of the promised land, after crossing the Jordan, an entire generation of people have died wandering in the wilderness. Their kids now are grown. Joshua is taking them into the promised land as their general, leading this army. And the first thing he does after crossing the Jordan at the command of the Lord is circumcise everybody again. It's really the first time because the generation didn't circumcise them while they were wandering in the wilderness, and that was a sign of unfaithfulness. As you continue, it comes up in other ways. Um, in 1 Samuel 18, King David, or who would soon be King David, wanted to marry the daughter of the current king Saul. And Saul said, here's my bride price. Go ahead and find me. Find me. Obtain for me 100 Philistine foreskins. And David, being the overachiever he is, brings back 200 scalps. So, comes up again as significance. And it continues as you go into the New Testament. In the very beginning of the Gospels, in Luke chapter 1, we see Jesus, because his family is Jewish, his family is faithful, they take him on the eighth day of his life, and they get him circumcised. But then, after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the church is born, and circumcision becomes a huge issue in the church. As you read, it becomes something that they're arguing over in terms of whether it's supposed to be necessary for salvation. And Paul, in Acts chapter 16, 
um, in order to effectively minister to Jews, he basically takes one of his pastoral assistants, Timothy, and circumcises him. He's a Greek, so he wasn't circumcised. It was offensive to the Jews. He was trying to reach, and so he said, well, I'll circumcise him. So now he is, quote-unquote, a practicing Jew who became a Christian to make it easier to minister to them. Later on, his other pastoral assistant, Titus, he refused to do that because he was, at that point, ministering to people who said, you have to do this or you're not saved, and so he took a stand. The letter to the Galatians is partly about that. There were those Jews who had become Christians and they believed that, yes, you're saved by grace through faith in Jesus alone, plus circumcision and some doing some other things that the Jews used to do. And Paul gets really upset. In his letter to the Galatian church, he writes, but if I, brothers, still preach circumcision or adherence to the law, why am I being persecuted? He says, in that case, the offense of the cross has been removed, which did away with the law. And he says, I wish those who unsettle you would go and emasculate themselves. Go cut it all off, right? That's in the Bible, right? It's a big issue. It's a regular thing that kept coming up. And this, what I'm calling the circus of circumcision, begins here in Genesis 17. Why is it so important? Why does it come up? Throughout the Old Testament, why does it come up in the very beginning of the New Testament in the church? What began in Genesis 12, which we read several weeks ago, with God's private calling of this man named Abram out of the city of Ur. In Genesis 15, it was then ratified by a private oath with Abram. This ritual they went through to say, I'm going to ratify the promise I made you earlier, now we see he is revisiting the covenant again and what was private is now becoming this public, visible sign of circumcision. And it's similar um, in that God marks his covenants with icons. We remember the bow, the rainbow that, that God gave Noah. Basically, he made a promise, I will never wipe the earth clean again because how sinful and and dark it is, though it will deserve it, I won't. I'll put my warrior's bow, like an arrow bow, up in the sky to remind you. But we didn't have to participate in that. There was nothing for us to do other than to say, look, the rainbow, good. God won't kill us, right? But this is different. In this case, circumcision is being given based on a promise for us to participate in in some way. Abraham has to do something. Now, to give a little context to where we're at, it's been 13 years since Ishmael was born to Hagar. It has been 23 years since Abram was first promised a son, and it will be one more year before he actually is born. At this point, Abram is 99 years old, and that's old. It's not just like, well, that's in biblical years. It's old, okay? His wife is 90. So the prospect, again, of having a child at 99 and 90, they're probably sleeping in separate beds and maybe aren't as affectionate as they were in the past. They're looking at each other going, how is this going to happen? To the point where Abram laughs at the idea. Sarah will later laugh at the idea. They are basically two very old people raising a teenager in what amounts to a really strange but the first probably modern family, right? 
We know that God's ways are certainly different than our ways, and His timeline is rarely in line with our expectation. But it's still a fair question to ask, why does God go so slow? I mean, a couple years, that's slow. But you've got 23 years of time. Why is He so slow and fulfilling and seemingly very deliberate in that? He comes and He visits over and over again. Hey, I'm making this promise. You're going to have offspring. You're going to have offspring. And it's not as if he's like forgetful. It's, not, it's like he has this planned out. Why so long? So in Genesis 17, when God, after Ishmael is 13 years old, it's supposedly been maybe 13 years since God has spoken anything, he shows up and he speaks to Abram. And the first thing he does, which is very common when God shows up, particularly to speak about his covenant, he'll always declare who he is first. Who begin by describing himself, declaring his name, and in this case he says, I am God Almighty. It's the first thing he says. El Shaddai, right? Probably have heard a song that has that in it multiple times. El Shaddai. Now, in giving his name, God, I think, is, is revealing a little bit as to why he might be so slow. What is the purpose in his delay? I believe that God wants Abram to know that he is God omnipotent, which means all-powerful, able to fulfill his promises. And essentially, this name, this, which is not perfectly clear as to the meaning, but as you see it repeated throughout Genesis and, and kind of glean a meaning from it, it really is God declaring himself as the all-powerful, sufficient one. More specifically, He is the God of miracles. He is the God and the only King who can do what is impossible in the eyes of man. Now, considering Abram and Sarah and the prospect of having a child, for them that is the impossible. And I'm convinced that it's more often than not the place that God wants us to be. The place where He will, if it takes 23 years, get us to the point where He says, okay, now you know you need Me. You're in an impossible situation. You're in a situation where you cannot lean on your own wisdom. You cannot lean on your own strength. You cannot lean on your own finances. You have to trust Me. I believe that's where God wants us most. Where we say, look, This situation is impossible. And unless God shows up, it ain't going to happen. And for Abram and Sarah, it took 23 years, 24 years. That doesn't speak so much about Abram. It speaks about all of us, right? We are apt to trust ourselves, our ways of figuring out our strength until we are sapped of all strength, sapped of all ways of figuring it out, sapped of all decision, like, I don't know. I don't know, Lord. He's like, okay, now I can work with you because I am God Almighty. Now, the second thing that God tells Abram is, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. And as you listen to that, you're like, wow, be perfect? Like, that's a pretty high demand. But I don't think that this is an expectation for Abram to be perfect. I think it's actually a command to be faithful. An invitation to live 
for the King who is the Almighty. The Hebrew doesn't imply sinlessness. It actually implies fullness. This idea of Abram is, is being called or commanded to live in complete surrender physically, materially, emotionally, in every way, complete surrender to God in every area of his life. Fully devoted to the king. It's the king walking up and saying, I'm the king, trust me. How does Abram respond to that? He falls on his face. He falls on his face, and there he remains. He actively acknowledges God as king. He actively says, okay, Lord, you are king. I'm your servant. You are my master. I'm ready to hear and obey whatever it is you want me to do. That is the impossible situation. That is the place where I believe God wants us to be. Where we are broken enough, willing to surrender enough to bow before, I don't get this, Lord. I will do whatever you say. Just tell me what it is. And I believe that's where Abram is. And I believe that's where God wants all of us. Where we come to God and we enter into His throne room as we pray and we ultimately are with true intention waiting to go, okay, whatever it is. And what it is, what Abram is told, is a bit of a surprise. Now, before he's really told any instruction, though, he's told some information because God still wants to prepare him. Abram's name, uh, Abram, the name, it actually means father of many, which you can imagine how he felt, perhaps, hearing his name said a lot. Abram, Abram, Abram. Imagine that he was a wealthy guy. He had lots of influence, lots of wells, lots of land. Like there were people that were serving him and they would come and say, hey, whose well is this or whose land is this? Oh, it's Abram. Oh, Abram, father of many. How many children does he have? One. Right? I was a teacher in high school and people often made fun of my name, right? Mr. Ford. So every kid, hey, Mr. Chevy. Like, Ha ha ha, funny, never heard that one, right? Do you drive a Ford? So imagine Abram, right? Oh, father of many, right? Oh yeah, many, like, ooh, Ishmael one, right? And so you can imagine, and again, we have to imagine, maybe Abram felt a little bit of you know, burden because of that. I had any other name, father of many, I'm 99, I have one kid, and that came from a weird situation, right? <laughs> Father of many. And God steps up and goes, hey, I'm going to change your name. Now, I don't know about you, and I've told people this before. Um, I always, I never liked my name. I just thought it sounded like Ham, right? Sam Ham. Like, yeah, like, I always wanted to be called Scott. <laughs> I have no reason other than I thought Scott was a cool name. So I grew up with three sisters, lots of Barbies, and I had the Ken doll, but Ken wasn't Ken. He was Scott, right? I wanted to be Scott. So I can imagine, you know, when, when Abram is told, like, okay, you're no longer going to be called Abram. He's like, yes, here it comes. Like, what am I? What is the name? You're going to be called Abraham, father of multitudes. <laughs> He's like, are you serious? It was bad enough. I'm father of many. I got one. Now I'm multitudes? What people are like, hey, Abram, no, no, no. Abraham, right? Abraham, 
Father of multitudes? Like, they know the names have meaning back then. And so it's surprising for him to hear this, but I think it's also encouraging. Now, a name change in Scripture is a little bit different than today, right? We change our name just because we want to change our name. But when God changes your name, when the king changes your name, and he does it oftentimes in Scripture, it is a very significant thing. It certainly was you know, somewhat common in ancient times, but it always had purpose behind it. It represented um, a, a real change, a, a new era, a new state of being, a, a new identity that was a new change of life. And the beauty of God changing your name is that He changes it before you actually see the fulfillment of that. Like, unlike us, we base things on appearances. God sees what He sees, right? He sees what is there. He sees in Abram like, oh no, dude, you're going to be the father of multitude. He's looking around, I don't see it. He's like, it doesn't matter what you see. It's what I see that matters. And it's sad that we, I think, spend so much time listening to what the world, even our family at times, and our friends tell us who we are, when we should be spending time listening to who God says we are, even if it doesn't make sense at the time. To Abram, it doesn't make sense. I'm the father of multitudes. Okay. And God's basically just trust me. Trust what I see. Now, having changed his name, though, God, again, proceeds to talk about himself. For the first nine verses and really into the rest of the text, you see God speak about himself a lot. He proceeds to declare, after changing his name, what he's going to do for Abram. In fact, throughout the whole text, you see the phrase, my covenant, nine times. This is my covenant, Abram. This is not our covenant. This is my covenant, my covenant. Let me tell you what I'm going to do. I will make you fruitful, Abram. I will make you the father of multitudes. I will make you into nations. I will establish my covenant with you and your offspring. I will give you offspring and land. I will be there and your God. You know, faith is really not that complicated, even if it's difficult to exercise. It is trusting that God will do what He says He will do. That's faith. I'm going to trust that God will do what He says He is going to do. And more often than not, our faith fails because we have put our faith in the wrong place or perhaps the wrong person. We put our faith in ourselves often. This is what I'm going to do, and then we don't do it, and we feel like a failure. This is what those people are going to do for me. We are with trust in what God says He will do. Now, if you trust... And if you hear nothing else, please hear this. If you trust that God is El Shaddai, that God is Almighty, that God is the God who can do the impossible, if you believe and trust that God is the Almighty, the God who can do the impossible, you will do whatever He asks you to do, no matter how incredible it is. Because you have deep conviction that it's God who does the impossible and you won't base your decisions on what you can see, but on what He says. Now, surprisingly, when He asks Abram something, He doesn't ask him actually to do that much. 
He doesn't really give Abram any rules or any guidelines. The law is not going to come for another 400 years, which is full of rules and guidelines. But he's certainly shifting. So the first eight verses, he's like, I will do this. This is who I am. I will make you fruitful. I will be your God. And then in verse 9, he says, now as for you, as for you, you must do this one thing. Circumcise every male in your household as a sign of the covenant I've made with you. The one stipulation that exists, the one thing I want you to do is make a commitment to circumcision. Circumcision will be the mark of membership in this covenant family. Now can you imagine, let's just be real for a second, can you imagine a 99-year-old Abraham Listening to that and going, what? Right? And of all things, like, you don't want, how about a nice altar? Right? Some stones. I'll paint my face up. Like, whatever you want me to do. How about I just wear a nice necklace to mark that? I'll make necklaces for everybody. He says, no, I want you to do this. And in commanding him this, it's important to know that He doesn't tell Abraham, look, my promise to you is dependent upon this action. He he doesn't say, if you don't do what I ask, I won't do what I promise. He is, without doubt, saying there's a way to participate in these promises. And even if it's not a prerequisite for me acting, Abraham, there is something for you to do. In parentheses here I have, Put some skin in the game, no pun intended, but it's a pretty good joke, huh? I know if I didn't, yeah, you again, okay. But it's a fair question to go, why that something? Out of all the things, why that, right? If you, we read through this, we skip, oh, circumcision, okay, no big deal. Like, well, come on, think about Abraham. He'd be like, okay, that's a, bit, that's a big commitment, Right? I think the story of Abraham over the last five chapters gives us a little bit of insight as to why maybe God might have picked that. Um, In Genesis 12, as I said, Abraham was called to leave everything he knew, his family, his culture, and to go to Canaan and to trust in God's promises. And he did. He trusted what he couldn't see. He trusted what he had never experienced. He trusted what, what he couldn't imagine, but because God said it, he trusted. But then when things got difficult when he got there, right? Famine. He began to trust his own wisdom and trust his own assessment, and he nearly loses it all as a result. Then he comes back from Egypt, and what does he do? He goes back to the altar, and he affirms, okay, I trust you, God. I trust you. I'm going to restart. I trust your promises. But it's only then, a few years later, that he puts his trust in his wife's wisdom, as we saw last week. And he takes her servant as a mistress. Now in a very real way, both Abram and Sarai at the time trusted in their own wisdom, even in their own bodies, and in their own effort to figure it out. To save themselves. Now, God is calling him to mark, to cut the very part of his body involved in that mistake. And in doing so, 
I believe there's something greater going on beyond the physical. He is calling Abram to cut off what amounts to self-trust, to self-reliance and self-effort in saving himself. The very part, if you will, involved in the mistake, the very thing that would be responsible in bringing the seed to bear. He says, I want you to cut off in a very real way. In doing so, it would be a very tangible commitment for Abram to live differently. Now, why is that? Well, think about the nature of this commitment. First and foremost, it would be very painful. Okay? It would be a painful change. It would be a very personal change. It requires a full commitment. This isn't the kind of thing that Abram, like, you know, instantly did, and he certainly was quick about it, but man, you need to go all in. There's no halfway, right? I mean, literally, think about that. It's kind of like, you start cutting, you're not changing your mind, you're going all in. You go, oh, yeah, that's, that's actually true. Dangerous if he stops. Flint knife, skin, ouch. It was going to hurt, and then he was going to hurt others. Painful change, sacrificial change, personal change. If you just said, hey, make a necklace, no problem. Look at that pretty necklace, right? From now on, I want you to tattoo a little mark on your arm. That would be a little painful, but not like the other. More than that, though, it was also permanent. It was a permanent change. It would be remembered Daily. There was no forgetting that. There was no hiding that, right? Sarah, what did you do? Right? There was no hiding it. It's there. It's permanent. Forever. Reminded of it daily. It's why God says in this text, I want you to put my covenant in your flesh. To be reminded of my promises, of who I am, of my faithfulness, and of who you are. Permanently. But it was also very public. It wasn't this private thing. It affected the whole family. It wasn't just, Abram, do this. Don't tell anybody about it. I know you and your wife will know that's about it. It's like every male that's ever been brought into your home or born in it, everyone will participate. This affects the whole family. This governs the whole family. This mark will direct the whole family This is how this home is ruled under and for the glory of God. So it was not a little thing. It was a major thing. And unlike the rainbow covenant where we just go, hey, it rains and sunny. Rainbow. Thanks, God. Very passive, right? This was, you're going to be involved. You are going to participate in sealing or perhaps resealing this covenant. It was a covenant, right? The covenant of circumcision was established as a sign for the former covenant that had actually been made. Remember the covenant of faith that Abram had demonstrated in Genesis chapter 15. It had initially been declared in Genesis 12, but then it was ratified in Genesis 15 with an oath. And at that time, when God said, I'm making these promises, it said, Abram believed. 
and it was counted to him as righteousness. And so we see by grace, which means undeserved, God initiating his favor, nothing Abram earned, through faith, trusting what God has said, Abram was made right and he wasn't yet circumcised. But he was right with God. And now he's being asked to make this mark to confirm, if you will, the faith that he already has, but also to some way mark those who would one day, by faith, put their trust in God. And it's so serious that God says, look, you either cut this off or I cut you off. You either cut yourself and mark yourself or I will cut you off from my covenant family. You will not participate in my promises and I will not bless you. I'm still going to bless. I'm still going to do these things. But if you want to be part of it, you will do this. And you begin to see why this became so important in the Old Testament. And why it became such an issue in the New Testament, very genuinely so. Where Jews are like, I can't give this up. This is like, an what do I do? But Abram understands God very clearly, and it says that very day, he didn't wait a week, he didn't wait a couple days, that very day, and it's repeated twice, that very day he went and performed circumcision on his son, on himself, and on everyone in his household, which is probably hundreds of people. The big ouch day that you can imagine was remembered for a long time. Now, even though circumcision became a part of the law in Leviticus chapter 12, the physical cutting of the flesh was never meant, like the whole law was never meant, to be the means or way of salvation. In time, what happened is the Jews began to put more hope in the fact that they were physically circumcised than they did in the faith that Abram had demonstrated. This is why throughout the Old Testament even, even before that time, God called for something beyond circumcision in the body. As early as Deuteronomy. So this is same writer, Moses, writing to the same people. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, God knew that Israel would basically misunderstand or perhaps not go far enough. In chapter 12, verse 12 of chapter 10 it says, And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, verse 14, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens and the earth that's all that's in it. Sounds like God Almighty. Yet the Lord set His heart in love on your fathers, grace, chose their offspring after them, grace. You above all peoples, as you are this day. In verse 16, circumcise therefore your bodies? No. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. God has never been concerned with the external more than He has been concerned with the internal. And even with the Jews, shortly after they really received this covenant and this command, he reminds them this is not about just your bodies. 
This is not just, just about your sacrifices and your rituals and your routines. This is about your heart. And you can even do all those routines and all those rituals and not have a heart that is sold out to me. So the question is, how did Jesus change all that? How did a circumcised Jesus come and say, things are different now? Jesus made it possible for our hearts and not just our bodies to be circumcised. And even though Jesus Himself, as I said, as a Jew, was physically circumcised, His final instructions to the church were not, go and make disciples and circumcise them all into your churches. That would have been a little awkward and weird, right? But He did say to do something very specifically. He said, go and make disciples and baptize them into God's covenant family. Now the Old Testament sign of membership in God's covenant was circumcision. But now, because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross, that part of the law has been fulfilled and is now unnecessary and baptism has begun the sign of membership in God's covenant family. Now, I don't mean the sign of membership in Restoration Road Church. I mean the sign of membership in God's covenant family. Paul writes in his letter to the Colossians a clarification of this change. And he says in Colossians 2, In Him, in Christ, in Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. There is a circumcision that is made without hands. It is a spiritual circumcision of the heart through which our sinful flesh is cut off and we are united and hidden in Christ. And only God does that. Only God is able to do that. That's not by anything we can do. And it is by His Holy Spirit alone. A man can circumcise his body. A man and a woman can do a lot of ritualistic things, but no one can circumcise their own heart. That is something that only the Lord can do. Now, baptism is something we can do. It is something we participate in, but it is a sign of our spiritual circumcision. And when the Spirit makes us alive according to His will and His power and His timing, He seals us as children of God according to Ephesians 1. He adopts us. He redeems us. He forgives us. And really, in baptism, we are adding, if you will, our seal to God's seal, simply acknowledging that what God has said is true. There is something for us to do as an act of obedience to display our identity in Christ and to declare membership in God's people. And it is important to God. The sign of baptism does not save. There is no magic in the water. But it is a powerful, perhaps the most powerful outward sign that represents a genuine inward change in the heart 
designed for us to remember often. Our baptism is a bold and active declaration of our cutting off of our own efforts to save ourselves, of our own wisdom to run our own lives, of our own self-dependence. Baptism, in many ways, is a public funeral of our old self. It is a funeral of the death of our self-will and our self-effort. And honestly, it's just as painful and it's just as permanent and it's just as public as circumcision, but much more glorious. Through baptism, we, we painfully acknowledge and confess our sin. And, and we are permanently cutting off and renouncing an old way of living, an old way of perceiving, an old way of thinking. And then I think most, I shouldn't say disturbingly, but maybe the thing we don't talk about enough, it is something that's also public. It certainly affects our family, but it's a different kind of family now. It doesn't just include men, it includes men and women. All people who claim, and we publicly do something, like when we make disciples and we baptize as a local church, we are identifying not just with Christ, but with God's people. And in doing that, through your baptism, you are inviting others into your life. You are inviting them in to teach you, to admonish you, to encourage you, and to help keep you as you grow in Christ. Baptism is where we formally receive the new name that God has already given us, just like Abraham. It is a, it is a naming ceremony in many ways where you receive a new name the old is gone, the new has come. As you are baptized in Christ, buried in Christ, you go down as a hostile enemy of God and you arise as one who is declaring themselves a son and daughter of the King. Not will be, but are. As you go down and you are buried with Christ, you are going down as one who loved the world, followed the world, trusted the world, and now you rise as a man and woman of the way. Follower of Christ. As you go down or buried, you go down alone, individual, by yourself, and you arise and are found as a brother and sister in Christ. And as you are buried, you go down as one who is self-seeking, trying to build your own kingdom, and you arise as one who has been given a ministry to be an ambassador for the one true king and the building of his kingdom. That baptism is a renaming of who you are. In calling us by a new name, God then commands us and empowers us by His Spirit to walk in a manner worthy of that name. Like Abraham, He commands us to be baptized, just as Abraham was commanded to be circumcised, and to live in complete surrender in every area of our life, fully devoted to Him as King. Now, please note, baptism is certainly not required to obtain eternal life. But I would argue that it is essential when you understand what it means to living an earthly life for Him. There may be, and I'm sure there are some of us here who have been baptized, and honestly, no one would ever know. There was no guessing whether Abram was circumcised or not. Many of us possibly are baptized, we have cut our body, 
but we have never had a cut heart. And like the Jews before us, there are some of us here maybe who have placed our faith in a particular act as the thing we're holding on to, as the reason why we're saved. That's what the Jews did. And quite boldly, Romans 2, Paul writes, he wrote, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So simply and plainly stated, no one is a Christian who is merely one outwardly. As in a label or a baptism or just calling yourself a Christian. We must put zero confidence in the fact that we prayed a prayer or we got wet or we attend church. Those certainly might be meaningful, but they do not reveal what is going on in here, necessarily. Jesus does save. Jesus is the only name given under heaven by which men may be saved. And through faith in His death for you and His life for you, He does call you to newness. And those that He saves, respond. Grace moves you. You respond to God in ways that are glorifying because you have truly experienced grace. In the case of Abraham, right, the Lord says, I'm going to bless you and your descendants through your future son. And now, because I'm doing this, because I'm showing you grace, live for me. If we're not living for God, if we're not surrendered to God, if we're not on our faces going, Lord, what next? What would you have me do? Even if we've been baptized, we prove by our actions and our attitudes that we have never truly known the grace of Christ. There are some here who need to be baptized. I got the joy of speaking with several people who are going to be baptized at our picnic in August. There are some who need to take that step. There are some who need to claim the name that you already have. And there are some who need to trust in the name for the first time. And you need to identify with Christ publicly and make a permanent change and have a place to mark. But honestly, there are probably more here who need to remember the meaning of your baptism. You need to remember what that meant. If it meant what we've talked about today. We take communion every week for a reason. As glorious and wonderful as it is to sing songs to Jesus and as glorious and wonderful as it is to proclaim God's Word, this is the most important thing we do. This is also a covenant. Communion is in a very real way a renewal ceremony. And what do I mean by that? What I mean is that it is for those who have been baptized in Christ. Communion points us back to our baptism. It is the place where we tangibly remember who we are. And in a physical way, to know that who we are plays itself out in our real life, in in our real actions, in our real decisions, in our real attitudes. 
Communion points us back to our baptism, reminding us that we received at some place and some time, and you may not remember the exact date, but you know I was baptized, and that was the day that I proclaim I have a new name and a new identity and a new trust and a new hope. That is what communion does. And as we come to the table, we remember that meaning of our baptism that we were permanently changed. And we were publicly done so with brothers and sisters in Christ that we are designed to do life with. Our commitment to regularly practice and participate in communion is our greatest reminder that we have been buried with Christ. That the old man is gone. That the shame has been removed. That the guilt has been covered. I don't know about you, but I need to be reminded of that every single week. But I'm remembering the day that I was immersed in Christ, that I was covered completely in Christ, covered in His forgiveness, covered in His love, covered in everything that is Him, so that I could rise and walk in the newness of life. I need to be reminded of that. I need to be reminded that I'm covered because I have a tendency to get myself dirty and to stumble, to make my mistakes. And so we go back to the table and remember the time and place we were buried with Christ in order that we might be raised with Christ to further put off that flesh that I'm tempted to trust in. Tempted to trust my own wisdom. Tempted to trust my own strength. Tempted to trust everything that I can make sense of when my baptism reminds me, no, you immerse yourself in trusting the Lord and what He says is true. I'll close the great verse out of Philippians 3.3 that reminds us of who we are. Paul writes, for we are the circumcision. Those who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Let us not put our hope in a person or thing or career or anything that is not Christ, but is of the flesh. And let us trust the One who promises to save and to forgive and never forsake us and walk with us and is one day returning for us where we live in His presence forever. Let's pray.